Haley Price was a typical 17-year-old with big dreams when she was killed. She was a high achiever, a debate champion, a prom queen, a doting girlfriend. But Haley also excelled at being murdered. Access my homicide locator function. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Do you think you'll ever want to go back? Probably not. Okay. But wouldn't it be a good way for you to close that door? But I don't want the door to close. Yeah. I'm not ready for it to be over. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. And they scribbled the words down on a piece of paper, and I looked at them and said, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B-side? This is a hit song. This is a hit lyric. It's a timeless lyric. Today, more of our faves, including Gloria Gaynor, a 17-year-old retiree, and two spoofs, one microbiological and one murderous. Stick around. There is no greater pleasure, in my opinion, than laughing at yourself. And when you come across someone who really has you down, who can make fun of every goofy habit, crazy quirk, and ridiculous idiosyncrasy, well, I, for one, am a goner. So when the satirical newspaper The Onion decided to make a podcast expertly blasting everything we and public radio listeners hold dear, we were ecstatic. From the true crime setup that screams serial and S-Town to the funniest closing credits you will ever hear, their blade is sharp and surgical. Nothing is left unscathed, just the way we love it. Here is the first episode of The Onions series, A Very Fatal Murder. What makes a murder perfect? What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? Does a murder like that even exist? Is it somewhere out there, waiting to be found the next time I open a letter from a convict or the next time I rest myself out of bed at 2 a.m. to check the Google alert I set for the word decapitated? Or is it just a fantasy, a wild goose chase that will end in nothing but run-of-the-mill kidnappings, dull acts of sexual bondage, or the same old mass murder suicides that say nothing about the fabric of America in the 21st century. Is it all just a beautiful dream? I'm David Pascal, and I've been asking myself these questions for years. For the first time, I finally have some answers. Hey, Ethel. Hello, David. What would you like me to do today? A. Go online. B. Access my homicide locator function. C. Send email. D. Play music. Okay, David. Retrieving homicides. This is Ethel. That stands for Extremely Timely Homicide Locator, by the way. Ethel's a supercomputer. Onion Public Radio hired a team of engineers at MIT to build her in order to help us find the most interesting, violent, culturally relevant murder cases in America. We've programmed Ethel so that not only can she comb through thousands of murders in a matter of minutes, double homicide, murder suicide, suffocation, satanic ritual, poison, but she can also update her own code based on what would make the most incisive, critically acclaimed OPR podcast. She's always learning. David, I have some murders that involve the resentment of the white working class. Would you like me to print to North Printer? Yes. I've been working with Ethel for three years trying to find the perfect case. We never stop pushing. 
Homicide 30971B, Joshua Diamond. Kidnapped by stepfather in 1987. Severed head found in laundry machine. Hmm. Ethel, can you set a filter for female victims only? Ethel settings can be adjusted to search for any number of factors. For example, we thought we had found our podcast when Ethel located the case of a girl who was raped and killed on the night of her 16th birthday, but we thought the situation didn't say enough about the decline of the middle class, so we changed the algorithm. Update complete. Please restart computer. Then, about a year ago, we thought we had it. It was a case that involved a whole group of coal miners, who were probably illiterate, but in a way that's charming and perfect, who went missing during a strike. The ideal case. We even started doing some preliminary interviews. Nobody ain't telling us nothing. Nope. They act like they just gone fishing or something, oh, no. but we know. We know. They killed him. They ain't fishing. I miss my daddy. I miss my But then our sponsor, Hillamunk Cheese, pulled out because they were dealing with a labor dispute of their own. After years of work, we were back to square one. But we didn't give up. Instead, we got better. We kept tweaking Ethel hoping that the perfect murder was out there somewhere. Retrieving homicides. Then, finally, after years of searching for the perfect murder, a murder that's engrossing and mysterious, a murder that perfectly reflects our nation's current economic and social conditions, a murder that comments on the past and future of intersectional feminism, a murder in which a really hot white girl dies. Homicide 9924R, Haley Price. We found Haley Price. Haley Price was a typical 17-year-old with big dreams and clear skin when she was killed. She was a high achiever, a debate champion, a prom queen, a doting girlfriend. But Haley also excelled at being murdered. One chilly Thursday morning in May, Haley was found on the floor of the local bottle cap factory that her father worked at. What's more, she was dead. Haley's case fulfilled every one of the requirements we had plugged into Ethel. It was gruesome. It was unsolved. It commented on the ugly underbelly of the American dream, the decline of manufacturing, modern beauty standards, the gig economy, factory farming, deforestation, saturated fats, the fragility of love, the golden era of television, and CO2 emissions. And most importantly, no one had done a podcast about it yet. 100% match. Retrieving coroner's report. The coroner's report the Bluff Springs Police Department provided states that Haley Price was shot three times in the head. She had multiple stab wounds. She was strangled and smothered with a pillow. She was soaking wet and had clearly been drowned. She had dirt of the same composition found on Mars under her fingernails. She had been dead for seven hours when her body was found, but her fingernails had been painted 15 minutes ago. She was wearing the class ring of a boy who wasn't her boyfriend Brian, even though he's a great guy and deserves way better. She had scratches on her arms and a bite mark on her leg. She was wearing a shirt that, according to her best friend Alex, was super ugly and not her style at all. Her hair? had been cut into a Beatles mop top. So what happened to Haley Price? And how can I get in on it? It's a full moon! Horrible. Just horrible. I'd keep an eye on Callaway if I were you. What do you mean Haley's dead? Oh my god, you didn't know? From The Onion and Onion Public Radio, I'm David Pascal, and this is a very fatal murder. Morning there. Can I get you a seat? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Bluff Springs, Nebraska is a small town. Not much more than a collection of barns and cars. But the people who live here love it. And if you're the kind of person who watches CBS and likes organized religion, it's easy to see why. Bluff Springs is safe. It's the kind of town where no one locks their door and parents don't have to worry about letting their kids walk their hogs around the neighborhood at night. That's why it was so shocking to the people of Bluff Springs 
when this happened. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm at the factory. It's Haley Price, and she's dead. When Haley was murdered, it shook this town to its core. After all, most of the people who live here had never met a podcast host, let alone a podcast host from New York City. They weren't used to stuff like this. I just can't imagine anyone in this town doing a thing like that. It's real sad. It's got everyone feeling on edge, you know? Everyone's kind of jumpy, I think. Horrible. Just horrible. Have you ever been interviewed for a podcast before? Well, I, I don't believe so. Life here is quiet. It's simple. A lot of the families in Bluff Springs have been here for generations. And as I drove through town and passed yet another novelty mailbox painted to look like a rooster, I couldn't help thinking, evolution is a funny thing. The town's main road is lined by a few small businesses, a pet store, a post office. Haley's High School is there, too. It's the type of school where the football field is bigger than the chemistry lab, and kids learn to throw a baseball before they take the SATs. The bottle cap factory where Haley was found is on this road, too, and a single wind turbine, which I assume provides the town's only energy and entertainment, just about a mile off it. On the side of the turbine, the name W.O. Calloway is painted in rusty red. You notice it right away when you take the Bluff Springs exit off the interstate. Since I got to town, I've been seeing this name everywhere. That's Calloway's turbine, yeah. Calloway? Sure, he owns just about the whole town, I guess. Factory, turbine. He owns my house. Uh, the pet store. Owns that seat you're sitting on. That huge freaking mansion? You seen that? That's Calloway's. It's basically Fort Knox. I saw him once being carried between two of his helicopters. I think he's fifth in line to be the king of the Netherlands or something. Heard he only eats goat. What's he like? Calloway? I've got no clue. Never met him. Never even seen him. Now, this is something I heard from a lot of people. W.O. Calloway looms large here, despite the fact that not many people have actually met him. Most people in Bluff Springs are employed by Calloway, either at the bottle cap factory or in one of his other businesses. But it is strange in a town like this, a town where neighbors stand in their yards talking and no one has HBO, that most people have never met their employer. Why? Could he be hiding something? And if so, what? Is he just an introvert? Or maybe he's gay and afraid to come out of the closet because the town will probably give him the chair for it. Or maybe he's a murderer. You all set, hon? Yeah, thanks. Hey, actually, do you know anything about W.O. Calloway? Have you heard of him? Well, he owns this diner for one thing. Never comes in, though. Always has his assistant come pick him up this potato salad sandwich he made us add to the menu. But I heard he only eats goat. <laughs> Haven't seen a goat in this town since 73. Really? Well, then I'll have one potato salad sandwich, please. I was starting to get to know Bluff Springs, but I still wanted to get to know Haley. So after I checked into my hotel and sent the OPR interns to pitch their tents on the side of the road, I went to talk to Haley's parents. This episode of A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by Complete Meal. Complete Meal delivers perfectly portioned fresh ingredients to your home, along with professional chefs to cook them, spoon them into your mouth, and move your jaw in a grinding motion. No more guesswork and stress when it comes to making, eating, and digesting dinner. Complete Meal chefs will even let you know when it's time to say, mmm, good, and I'm full. Complete Meal. She was just a happy kid, you know? And she would just come home and say, Daddy, I want to be an astronaut, or Daddy, I want to be a vet. I, I want to have ten horses, Daddy. She was our little dreamer. <laughs> I'm interviewing Haley's parents, John and Bethany Price, and their home in Bluff Springs. There are little hints of Haley everywhere, from the picture of her on the mantle to the couch she probably used to make out with her boyfriend Brian on. This must be really hard to talk about. It's been the worst month of our lives, as I'm sure you can imagine. 
Yeah, you must have cried so much. <laughs> yeah, yes. I just wish I could have been there. Haley was just, she was this bright light in everyone's lives. And she was going to be a vet. She wanted to go away to vet school and then come back and open a practice here. She worked at the pet store. She just loved animals. And people, too. Would you mind passing me that box of tissues? Actually, your sniffles are, are coming through really well on the mic, so let's just stay on this. Um, Mr. Price, would you mind talking more about Haley's hopes and dreams for the future? Well, she just, she was going to go off to college. You know, had her pick a school. Oh, did she apply to NYU? That's my alma mater. No, she was going to stay in state. Haley was really a home. Oh, that's a shame. Us. I really think she would have loved it. The prices seemed to be responding really well to memories of their dead daughter. So I asked them to show me Haley's room, which they had kept perfectly preserved since her death. It was a typical 17-year-old girl's room, plastered with photos of Haley and her friends, pictures drawn by the little girl she used to babysit, and magazine clippings. She was really an artistic kid. You know, she loved music. She liked buying all the fashion magazines. She was always, you know, cutting pictures out and changing her wall around and all that. Yeah, I was kind of an art kid, too. I mean, I definitely hung out with everyone. I could easily jump between groups, but art was probably my main thing. Was that Haley at prom last year? Oh, yep, there she is, the prom queen herself. She loved taking pictures of her friends. Oh, and there's Orlando Bloom. Oh, he's great. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor, Box Box. Actually, would you mind just reading this? Uh, what? And if you have any personal experience using Box Box, uh, you could add that if it's positive, of course. Um. Boxbox is the service that sends a brand new box to your door every month. With Boxbox, you'll never need to drive hundreds of miles and pay hundreds of dollars for a box again. Sign up for Boxbox by going to boxbox.com and entering our promo code Haley for 10% off your first Boxbox. Boxbox. Is that okay? Awesome. Um, Have you ever ordered these? No. Oh, well, let me know if you do, because I think if you order one, I get one for free. I was starting to get a more complete picture of Haley. To the people who know her, she wasn't just a perfect murder case. She was a girl with dreams of leaving her middle-of-nowhere town and traveling to New York City. She dreamed of attending cultural events and literary readings. But that dream will never become a reality. Never will Haley return home after a long day of freelance journalism to her live-in boyfriend and miniature poodle. Never will she lie on the roof of her bedsty walk-up with her college friends, taking in the glory of the city around her. Her life was cut short. And for what? After talking to Haley's parents, I knew what I had to do. I had to make the best podcast ever produced. I had to get more downloads and iTunes reviews than any podcast in history. I had to win awards. I could not let Haley die in vain. Coming up this season on A Very Fatal Murder... A call from Bluff County Jail. I can't believe she actually died. It's so gross. That's very strange, David. Things do not add up. The full moon! Oh, fuck, run! You may now kiss the bride. I loved her so much, dude. But she never wanted to play paintball. Now I might never find out why. Visit our website to find pictures of Haley and sign up for OPR Plus to get access to pictures of Haley's corpse and hundreds of other corpses for just $5 a month. A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by me, David Pascal, and Onion Public Radio. This podcast was made possible by the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Hillamonk Cheese, and listeners more generous than you. A 
Episode 1 of A Very Fatal Murder was produced by Katie Yeiser and her team at The Onion. When Third Coast featured this episode on our website recently, we asked the production team to name some of the essential elements that shape the sound of A Very Fatal Murder. These included gulping down tea with honey and using a drafty Chicago alleyway to recreate the soft prairie breeze of Nebraska. To read about all the essential ingredients that went into a very fatal murder, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. I started feeling heartbeats that were not my own. I would put my hand up and I could actually feel throbbing. And now, from a hilarious, pointed parody of public radio to an actual public radio story that's also a little loose and playful with reality, just in a different way. One that's funny, original, and slightly disgusting. Just saying. But consider yourself warned. You're about to hear a kind of love story of the symbiotic sort. And I think that's all I'm going to say. The rest is self-explanatory. It was the only thing I could think about. Like almost every hour of the day, I would go to the mirror to try to see the back of my head. Because I knew there was something in there. I was like, there's something growing inside my head. I know it. I think 2015 was the year of the sheep. But for my circle of friends, it was more like the year of the baby. Everyone I knew was getting pregnant. My best friend Steph and I would always make fun of those stupid Facebook photos where it's just like a couple where the man is wearing an apron that says bun maker pointing at his partner's belly. I, ugh, that just, ugh. I've just never, I've just never wanted a baby. It totally grosses me out. Like, it makes me think of a parasite. Like a parasite living off you. I remember the day she told me we were out at brunch and I ordered a mimosa and she didn't. That's when she told me she was pregnant. I just felt my stomach sink. I mean, this was the person I always did everything with. Like we'd spent our teens pouring over Kurt Cobain lyrics late into the night and getting high at punk shows and... More recently, we'd spent our summers canoe camping and, you know, hosting potlucks with all our friends. Um, It felt like all that stuff would be over. We were actually supposed to go to Costa Rica that summer, but she couldn't go anymore because her morning sickness was just too intense. So I ended up going on my own. It was the last day of my trip, and I was going on a group hike in the jungle. And it was just brutally hot, and the sweat was dripping off my face. Drip, drop. And I was just miserable. The guides had warned us to keep basically every inch of our skin covered to avoid mosquito bites. But I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just too hot. So... At one point, I took my hat off, and it felt so good. It was just such a huge relief to take it off. 
Even if I did get stung quite a bit. A couple of days after I got back from my trip, I started experiencing this pain at the back of my head where two of these mosquito bites were. It was a prickly kind of pain, almost as though somebody was doing needlework on the inside of my scalp. And as the days went on, the pain just kept getting worse and worse, and I realized that these weren't regular mosquito bites. Oh, come in, come in. Don't worry about taking your shoes off. Just give them a little wipe on the rug there. You know, I was kind of surprised when you called. The Craigslist ad has been up for months now, but no one's been biting. But I think you'll find this place has a lot of charm. Now, if you'll just follow me through the vestibule... I remember going over to Steph's place and asking her to take a look at my head, but she just thought I was being paranoid. But after about a week, the bites had swollen up so much that they'd become these really big welts on the side of my head. Through this door is the bathroom. And they even started leaking this the plumbing's a bit wonky. brownish red liquid. I actually don't mind the drips, though. They've got a nice rhythm to them, don't you think? Drip, drop, drip. So I googled drop. scalp pain plus Costa Rica plus jungle. And the first result was this thing called human bot fly. It kind of looked like a mini Michelin man maggot with like a pincher mouth. And the bot fly is kind of like a house fly, except it lays its eggs on mosquitoes. And then when the mosquito bites people, the eggs will then fall off and burrow into that skin. And they gestate there for about six weeks before emerging and flying off. Don't you think the curved walls make it feel very homey? Almost like a little cocoon. Cocoon. Do you have that word in Spanish? Cocoon? Cocoon. 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 The larvae have these barbs around their bodies that hook them into your tissue. And when they wriggle around, the hooks scrape against you and cause this intense pain. Intense pain. And at this point, part of me just knew that this was what I had living inside my head. Two botflies. Oh, you'll take it. Two botflies had moved in. And you haven't even seen the other features yet. If you have a closer look at the carpeting, you'll notice it's actually a very fine shag, almost like fur. To avoid completely freaking out, I start to humanize them. I imagine them in little outfits. I adore that dress, by the way. She in a yellow sundress. It's so fetching. He in a top hat and tails. Classy couple. I give them names. How do you pronounce that? Like Pushkin and Priscilla. Hmm, doesn't sound Costa Rican to me. I imagine them loading up on hummus while we're at a potluck with friends. Just a little smeared on your face. Could I get you a napkin? Or hanging upside down while I do yoga. You know what they say. Oh. Clean body, clean mind. I imagine them hatching at six weeks and crawling out of my scalp, tipping their hats at me and walking off into the sunset. Look up at the skylights. So bright. Farewell, little botflies, I'd say, as they walked off the edge of the earth that is my head. 
It must have been about a week later, Steph's parents threw her a gender reveal party, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, by this point, she was about four or five months pregnant, and she kept going around telling everybody that um, her baby was the size of a turnip. And then so there was this big reveal during the party where she cut into this cake and the inside was blue, which meant she was having a boy. Everyone oohed and awed. And I guess I might have had a few too many blue lagoons because I got up and announced that I was carrying twins, a boy and a girl, that mine were about the size of two peas in a pod. And then throughout the rest of the party, I kept trying to force people to feel these bumps on my head. But they just wanted to eat their stupid blue cake. Did you hear something? Hmm. Must have been the wind. Anyway, where were we? To your right over here is the closet. The previous owner left quite a number of memories in there, but you can put them out on the sidewalk if you need the space. By this point, the pain was pretty much constant. I knew I should probably go see a doctor, but part of me was a little bit scared because what if it because what if it wasn't actually bot flies? What if it was something way worse, like a brain tumor or something like that? Shh. There's that sound again. But at one point, listen. Shh. I started feeling heartbeats that were not my own. I would put my hand up on these two welts on the side of my head and I could actually feel throbbing. And I swear I could hear this faint sound in my scalp. Now, through here... It was really faint. ...is the pipe organ, of course. Almost exactly like when you pour milk onto Rice Krispies. You simply must play it every day at 12 sharp pop, pop, to keep pop, the earthquakes pop. at bay. Here, let me show you the tune. It sounded like these things were eating parts of my brain. Like, there they were eating my memories of Steph and I making s'mores at camp. Oh, it's a little dusty in here. Here they were eating my ability to speak French. Je ne sais quoi. Or nibbling on my, my knack for recalling actors' names in films. You know who you remind me of? Angelica Houston. I felt like I was literally losing my mind. This is where the previous tenant used to stash her imagination. I've been using it as my Zumba room, though. Do you Zumba? So I went to the tropical medicine clinic, and when the doctor parted the hair at the back of my head, his face just went white. Oh, no. It's new. And he ran out of the room and got two other doctors to come look at my head. We forgot to go back and sound the organ. The earthquake's coming. It's anger. And then they left the room and got even more doctors to come look at my head. It's the earthquake. It's the earthquake. It's coming. And finally, one of them said, Oh, yes. I see them. Hold on to me, little ones. Hold on to me. They said that I had two options. They could either cut out the botfly larva through surgery. It's okay, little ones. It's okay. But the scalp bleeds a lot. So instead they stuck this sticky, like, tape-like substance over the breathing holes. Hold your breath. And so we just had to wait for the larva to come up for air. 
so that they would get stuck and then could be removed. In the meantime, I went to the waiting room and I texted Steph right away to let her know, like, see, I told you there was something growing in my head. Finally, after what felt like forever, the doctors peeled the tape off and sure enough, the two larvas were poking out and the doctor grabbed their little heads with tweezers and very slowly pulled them out. And they were stunned because they hadn't had air for a while, so they weren't moving. It's funny, I remember as I was taking the elevator down to the lobby, I kind of realized that we'd never, we'd never discussed the third option to just let them grow to full term. As much as I'd been joking around about carrying twins, I was their surrogate mom in a way. They'd never even met their actual botfly mom. Like, I was the only thing that they knew. I would never get to see them pop out with their little top hats on. They were just gone. Um, When the elevator reached the ground floor and the doors opened, I saw Steph was there, standing in the lobby. And she had this huge balloon, but she had scratched out it's a boy for congratulations it's a monster and I just I just cracked up laughing and I gave her a big hug but every once in a while I still get pains at the two bite sites kind of like ghost pains you know like how when people lose a limb they still feel it sometimes yeah I don't know I just Sometimes I catch myself wondering if there's a third one in there somewhere, like one that burrowed its way deep into my brain and is still living there. Takata was produced by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame the team behind the podcast Love Me with voice actress Jane Lewis. The story was commissioned by Falling Tree Productions for BBC Radio 3's Between the Essays. My coach gave me a gymnastics journal for my birthday and she told me to write all my mistakes and feelings about gymnastics and what my goals were. In the front cover, she drew a picture of me top of the podium on first place. We love to highlight new voices. Our next story is from an emerging producer making her first audio documentary. Here, Canadian producer Jess Shane profiles a young, accomplished gymnast who, though still a minor, has had to wrestle with some stark realities, like retirement. Here's Dear Dream. All my gymnastics stuff in the box. I'm 17 years old, and I was a four-year national team member for the gymnastics. Similar national I represented Canada at international tournaments pretty regularly. So I went to Bulgaria, Hungary, Greece, Ukraine, Italy, the U.S., and I think Argentina. This is the first time I've taken my hoop out since I quit. This is called boomerang. 
So it's when you have to flick the hoop with your finger so that it rolls across the carpet and then comes back to you. I didn't actually do that great a job taping it, so it's been feeling weird the entire time I've been competing with it. See, I'm speaking in the present still, right? I can't believe it's over. You're injured and you can't get it back. And all you have is like videos of what you did before and like your old medals. I have dreams that I'm still training. Like I had a dream last night that I went back to gymnastics for group. And I remember I was like trying so hard to like get back the skill that I used to be really, really good at in my sleep. Even if I really wanted to go back now, I don't think I would ever get back to the level I was when I left. So it's kind of like mourning in a way, like mourning the part of me that used to exist. Oh, I can't get it out of the case. Oh, I haven't take, taken my ball out since I quit either. I know a lot of gymnasts, when they quit, they make a big post about it on Facebook. And that's kind of like them saying bye to everyone. My mom thought that I should do that, but I didn't want to. And I still don't want to. I found, I want to get it out. Um, this diary I wrote when I was training. My coach gave me a gymnastics journal for my birthday, and she told me to write all my mistakes and feelings about gymnastics and what my goals were. On the front cover, she drew a picture of me on top of the podium on first place. Dear Jean, I want to become one of the best rhythmic gymnasts. I want to become one of the top rhythmic gymnasts in the world in this sport that I love. For that reason, instead of Dear Diary, I will start with Dear Jean, because that is what this really is. Sometimes I visualize what it was like before I went out on the carpet for competing. I can't smell hairspray without thinking that I'm about to compete. It's, it's stressful for sure. There's so many girls on all of the carpet, so it's difficult to get a spot. My heart's not racing yet, but it's definitely beating faster. They call that I'm on deck, and I look over at my coach, and <laughs> she can see that I'm nervous, so she gives me this stern look again, and I don't show her I'm nervous. I can hear the music of the girl that's competing in front of me. My coach stands behind me and pinches my ear really hard. I think their strategy is to make it hurt so much that I can't think about anything else. I think I want, I can, I will. I don't leave room for any other thoughts. I want, I can, I want, I can, I will. I can, I want, I can, I will. I can, I want, I can, I will. The girl finishes her routine. They call up Danelle from Canada. Then I step out to the carpet, salute the judges, smile, and then it starts. But anyways, back to when things got really tough. I find it might take a while. Mm. Dear, I found it. Dear Dream, I've been here for the past two weeks training nine hours a day. Absolutely exhausted. My hip hurts like crazy. I can barely walk. And I've been icing the whole day as well to try to numb out the pain. Dear Dream, my coach is yelling at me. I'm feeling at everything and I'm not ready. But I have a problem with my balance and I talk too much. 
We didn't get weighed today, so starting tomorrow we will be weighed every morning at 7 a.m. I feel so upset and I have so long left of training. Wish me luck. I'm running over my risks, running over my turns, and my coach doesn't like the way the beginning of my routine is looking. Even though I'm trying my best and sweating like crazy and everything hurts, I keep going and I'm still trying my best and my coach still isn't liking it. I was so angry. So sick of everything. I think I was really angry at myself. I do a jump where I pass the hoop under my leg and it hurts so much that I actually just fall to the ground. Coaches kind of look at me and my music's still playing, wondering why I don't continue. The next morning I woke up and I was like, I don't feel like going to training today. And then I said, okay, I'll give myself like a week break. And then a week later, I was like, I still don't want to go. Then suddenly a week turned into like three months. There was something interesting that one of my favorite gymnasts said, Kanaiba. She said, there's so many girls that physically could make it to the Olympics, but they can't handle it psychologically. That's what stops them. Wanting to quit made me feel awful about myself because then I was like, wow, I'm so lazy. I'm so weak that I can't keep going with the sport that I love. Like, is that it? So it was just like, I don't want to do gymnastics. And I'd get mad at myself for not wanting to do gymnastics. And I'd get mad at myself for getting mad at myself for not wanting to do gymnastics. A vicious cycle of not liking myself. It went on until that one day where I just didn't go to training. I actually got a message from one of my coaches saying, like when I messaged her like a few months after I'd left, and she said, um, you know, sometimes the emotions just get in the way of the brain and then we don't make stupid decisions. Sometimes I see it that way as well. I had a doctor tell me that my peak would be when I was 19. So like I'd be the kind of person that'd have to work really hard for a long time before getting there. So I'd think while I was training, while I was competing, while I was exhausted, that even though I don't feel that good about myself now, that's only because I haven't reached my peak yet. And it doesn't matter how unhappy I am now. When I reach my peak, I'll finally be happy. But on the other hand, I could already see how much happier I was after I quit. I just remember thinking that now I could actually eat what I wanted and not be hungry all the time. I started enjoying other people's company more. I started realizing how many friends I had that I hadn't been like counting on. And I thought that because I was feeling so great, eventually I'd want to go back to gymnastics. Eventually I'd realize that something was missing. And like I was sent like long text saying like gymnastics was so important to me and you were so important to me and I'm really sorry that I haven't been in touch. I'm going to do more to make it up to you guys. And then I haven't because I like haven't been able to. So I think going back to the gym and seeing the other girls and my coaches is a big goal right now. I actually have an excuse kind of now because they're going to Estonia. One of the coaches emailed me asking me if I could bring one of the costumes they need for group in that I have. So she gave me a ton of dates this week to go back, but I didn't respond to her yet. We are going for ice cream! My favorite meal. I kind of want crepes too, because it's cool. I kind of want crepes with ice cream on top. I kind of want Nutella crepe. Oh, I should have brought money. Did you bring money? Don't worry. I have a credit card to my <laughs> father's bank account. Do you want to know the card. pin? No, I knew you should not. Know. <laughs> Whoa, so many, so many people. people. I hope no one I know is here. Hi. 
Can we get one crepe with Nutella, please? One single gelato with Nutella and one double as well, please. Okay. Thank you so much. Wait, wait, don't have the first bite until I do. So I'm probably going back to the gym this Friday. That's so soon. Yeah, it's too soon. Good for you. Thanks. It's not too soon. It's the sooner the better. And you thought I'd never go back, right? No, I, I thought you would eventually. I'm nervous about going back to the gym and talking to my coaches because I feel really badly for leaving them without saying anything and for not being in contact with them for almost a year now after they did so much for me. Even if I was in your situation, I would be nervous about going back. But I think it's the right thing to do. You still say, like, it feels surreal that you quit. And I think by telling them why you left, you'll feel relieved. And also, like, you can move on. I guess that's true, but I still feel like I did betray them by not communicating with them after I left. But it was for your health. And if they can't accept that, then they're not, like, worth it. I think you're only thinking of it from their point of view, but if they were you and you had to leave and like quit what you've been working for for your whole life, you're going to be like reluctant to contact them because you're so upset about it. And I think you need to like explain that to them. Don't be, wait, what are they called? It starts with an N, people that dwell on the past. Misogynists or something? Nostalgic. Yeah. You've made the right choice with your life. Do you think so? Yeah. You don't think I should have stayed in the sport? No. You should have faith in yourself. You made the right decision. You love Nutella? Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> that happiness in that face, you know, like. Thank you. Get it. Love Nutella. Yeah, no, she's so happy. She can go home. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of heartbreaking when our coaches would tell us that no matter how much you work, you will never be world champion. Like, I. I remember being told that no matter what we do in this gym, you will never be the world champion. So I remember telling one of my other coaches after my coach said this to us for like the fifth time. She said, you can do anything. She was like, don't even think about what this coach said. Like, if you want it enough, you can do it. Yesterday I was crying a lot because I was watching gymnastics again but this time it just felt different because I realized that the reason I loved watching it so much is that I'd still like picture that it was me and that someday I'd be there even after a year that's also why I was crying yesterday because when other people my age were like who am I like I don't know who am I gonna be when I grow up I was always able to look at them and say like wow I'm so lucky I know that I'm a gymnast and then all of a sudden I wasn't a gymnast in gymnastics, I knew what each day would look like. I knew what my routine was. I like knew how hard I'd have to work, and I knew what would come next. Now I have no idea what will come next. I don't know where I'll go to school. I don't know what my job will be. So uncertainty is something I have to learn to deal with. Mommy, do you mind if we sit down and talk about going back to the gym? I'd love to. I think it's going to be really painful going back and like seeing what I'll never have. I don't think you are remembering your injuries. Because everyone else has worse injuries. 
No, really, like, people have worse injuries. Like, people get hip replacements later, and that's how they keep walking. Maybe I need just to work harder. No, I do feel like I could have kept going, maybe. Except now you can't walk without it hurting. So what do you think would have happened if you pushed it even more? Well, I can't imagine it being worse than it is now, so maybe it would have been even more worth it if I'd gotten some reward and then, like, had to deal with all this instead of, like, stopping when I'm not finished and then but, but feeling you know, like it was all for nothing. How could you have possibly worked more? Yeah. I know. I don't want to go back tomorrow. Okay. You haven't once said, my gymnastics career is finished. Yeah. And maybe going is that articulation and you're not ready for it. Do you think you'll ever want to go back? Probably not. Okay. But wouldn't it be a good way for you to close that door? But I don't want the door to close. Yeah. I'm not ready for it to be over. I realized that I like recreate the past in my head. Like I don't remember things. I don't remember what things felt like. I don't remember how unhappy I was. But then when I look back at like videos or I see a photo or I see like the journal entries, then I remember exactly how I was feeling. And then I realized how much I've changed it in my head. I talked to my mom a bit about it. She told me what my coach had said that she hadn't told me. Apparently she told my mom that I was the world champion for having competed with my injuries. And she never told me that. I was sitting watching TV with my sister and I was on my phone and I get this text and I was like oh my gosh my coach is coming and they're like really like oh my gosh my coach asked if it was okay if I could put my costume in a bag outside my house and she'd drive by and pick it up she was giving me the option of not seeing her if I wanted to if I wasn't ready so I got the costume ready and then I actually spent some time looking at myself in the mirror and I was thinking like, wow, I thought I'd feel so badly about myself. Like, at this moment, I'd be so nervous about her seeing me how I am now versus how I was then. But I actually just thought, I'm great the way I am now, and I have nothing to be embarrassed about. I was really impressed because I didn't really even consider leaving it outside. Like, I knew immediately that I wanted to see her. It also made me feel really good about myself that I was so much stronger than I thought I was. She drove up and I saw her and I ran to get my dog so that he'd go and greet my coach because people are always in a better mood after seeing my dog. And I waited for her to come to the door and I like hid behind the wall. <laughs> and then I saw her. I said, I'm really sorry that I haven't been to the gym. And she just, I don't, it wasn't like what she said, it was just like the way she was talking, like I could tell that she understood and she supported it. Sometimes I visualize what it was like before I went out on the carpet for competing. I take a deep breath, letting my shoulders rise all the way to my ears, and I try to gather everything I'm scared of, everything I'm worried might go wrong, and like put it all together into a ball. And then when I exhale, I let go of everything I'm scared might happen. So when I step out on the carpet, I repeat to myself, 
I want, I can, I will. Then I step out to the carpet, smile, and then it starts. <laughs> Good night, Dream. That was Dear Dream, produced by Jess Shane for The Doc Project from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And I said, well, I like songs that are meaningful. I like songs that are strong, that touch people's hearts, that have good melodies. If there was ever an anthem written for someone like the gymnast in Dear Dream, it was Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. That song came out in 1978. And as a senior in high school at the time, I can tell you that it just exploded out of the speakers and grabbed everyone by the collar. You could not stay seated when it came on. Then it became the anthem of the underdog everywhere. And it still is. Thank God. My name is Vince Aletti. In 1978 and 79, I was the disco critic at Record World magazine. I wrote a weekly column about disco releases. My name is Gloria Gaynor, and I'm an international recording artist and performer. Disco was an underground phenomena for, I'd say, five years before anybody seriously above ground paid attention. It certainly seems that more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. It was a club phenomena. It was created by DJs as a way of sustaining a whole evening of music uh, by playing records end to end. It brought about a kind of camaraderie that we hadn't seen in club goers. And it was a very positive, upbeat time. Some of the records that were popular around the same time were uh, Chic, Grace Jones, Sylvester, who was one of the most out gay performers of that period, and Donna Summer. Women have always uh, been the strongest vocals in disco. The one thing that disco music never got credit for is the fact that it is the first music ever to bring together people from every nationality, race, creed, color, and age group. Never Can Say Goodbye was Gaynor's first really big hit. But she kind of uh, slipped off the radar at the clubs. The record company had said they were not going to renew my contract. I'd been in hospital. I'd had surgery on my spine. I was thinking about the death of my mother. I was thinking about the fact that I had been paralyzed from the waist down. People were going around the company saying the queen is dead. And there I am laying in hospital wondering what's going to happen with my life hoping to completely survive. And while I was there, the record company called me and told me that they'd gotten a new president over from England and that where I was very popular and that he wanted to, me to record this song called Substitute. I heard the song, didn't particularly like it, but I didn't care. They weren't they weren't ending my contract. I still was a recording artist. I was happy to go and do it. I get out to California 
with the producers and I asked them what's going to be the B-side. And they asked me what kind of songs that I like, what kind of songs that I like to sing. And I said, well, I like songs that are meaningful. I like songs that are strong, that touch people's hearts, that have good melodies. They said, "Mm mm-hmm. We think you're the one we've been waiting for to record this song that we wrote two years ago. And they scribbled the words down on a piece of paper, and I looked at them and said, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B-side? This is a hit song. This is a hit lyric. It's a timeless lyric. Well, they said, maybe it'll get a chance one day. I'm like, if I have anything to do with it, it's going to get some play. It's going to get noticed now. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. So we recorded it. We took it to the DJ at Studio 54. We gave him a stack of them to give to his DJ friends around New York. They began to play it. People began to request it in the club, and then they began to request it on radio because now they want to hear it on the way home. They want to hear it on the way to work. And the radio station started calling the record company asking, where is this song that we keep getting requests for? And the record company had to say, which much chagrin, you've already got it. It's on the B-side of that other song. This was a huge comeback for her. And it was also such a strong record in what it said and how people responded to it. There was the sense of real fury in her, but also determination and success. This song taps into the tenacity of the human spirit and, and, and just pulls up from inside of you whatever it is that gives you hope, whatever gives you strength, whatever gives you courage, you tap into that when you hear that song. It was, you know, around this time that people became aware of AIDS. So for the gay community, a song called I Will Survive gave people a sense of determination and hope. And I think that's why it lasted and why it's still an anthem as something that went well beyond the idea of spurning a boyfriend. People want to sing that refrain. You know, I look out at that audience, I know they're gonna love this song. I know that it's gonna empower them, it's gonna inspire them, it's going to uplift them, and that gives me all that I need to go out and perform that song every single time. Inside the National Recording Registry, I Will Survive, produced by Devin Strolovich for PRI's Studio 360. Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive was inducted into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress in 2016.
You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.